Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and this is a podcast about how we talk to people different from ourselves and the things that we hold sacred. In this episode, you'll hear me talking to Andy Crouch. Andy is an American author, journalist, editor and musician. He's a former editor of Christianity Today, which is the best-selling US evangelical magazine. And he's written on technology, on power and on culture. He's regularly named as one of the most influential evangelicals in the United States, and he's one of the best networked men I have ever met. He's a really helpful counterexample for us British-based watchers of US politics, thoughtful, intelligent and inspiring American evangelical. I spoke to him about his widely read editorial criticising Donald Trump, which was the magazine's most read ever piece of content and led to a spike in magazine subscriptions. I'm still chewing on his conviction that culturally Christian Trump supporters are responding to a sense of cultural shame. We pondered what it takes to have the emotional intelligence not to let our knee-jerk reactions rule our public conversations and the role of media regulation in shaping culture. I could have spoken to him all day and I hope you'll really enjoy listening to what I think will probably be the first in several conversations. the question that I'm asking everyone and I think probably at this stage in the podcast it would be helpful to define my terms a bit more as my more uh, academic colleagues would challenge me on. When I talk about uh, the sacred, the things we hold sacred or sacred values, I really mean uh, the things that we would instinctively defend in a not irrational but certainly not solely rational way, not in a self-optimizing way. The um, writer Scott Atran in his book, Talking to the Enemy, defines sacred values as the things that if someone offered you lots of money to give up, you would be less likely to want to give them up. You would dig deeper into your commitment to them. And I think we all have them. And I think the clash of them is perhaps what is making some of our public conversations so difficult. Being more honest about them would be a start. So other than obviously your precious people in your life, your friends and your family, what are the things that you hold sacred? What are your sacred values? This is not, uh, it's a great first question. Launch right into the deep end. I, I think, you know, uh, that, that rubric of uh, if you were offered money, you'd actually hold on more tightly, or what is it that you're most reluctant to uh, give up? I suggest to me that that one answer I ought to give is actually language. Um, And uh, it may be hard for an American to make this case to a largely British audience, but I actually do love and care about language. And when it is used carelessly or in facile ways uh, or with kind of cliche or sentimentality, I actually feel tremendously uh, personally um, offended, if not violated. Like, I really care that we speak um, and write carefully together. And uh, of course, we don't always succeed in doing that, but but it really worries me when people are careless with language. Um, so that would be one one thing that that rises to an almost sacred level, which I suppose is why I'm an editor and a writer and am constantly copy editing things uh, that I see just on the street. <laughs> oh my goodness! I now feel like I'm not going to send you uh, any of my blogs. 
So try and unpack for me uh, why you think that is. Were there philosophical uh, influences in your childhood, life experiences that have led you to hold the way we use language as a kind of principle worth defending? That's a great question. I suppose it does partly come, and maybe this is true for many things that we'd hold sacred, from experiences of, of great power and transcendence related to language. So I remember getting to university and studying poetry. I just sort of happened into a, a poetry class my first semester. And I suppose I had read poetry kind of casually before that, but I hadn't read it seriously. And uh, it it opened up this new world of, you know, poetry is sort of language distilled to its absolute essence, you know, uh, meaning, rhyme, rhythm, and, uh, and condensed to such a point that you can't take out a single word or add a single word without diminishing the value of poetic expression, which is in a way what distinguishes it from prose and so forth. And and these were very powerful experiences, not just in my own personal reading, but in the kinds of conversations that opened up with my classmates and eventually with others. So I would say it's partly having experienced how good it can be <laughs> that makes me realize how cheaply it's used much of the time. At least for me, I think there's a deeper thing here, which is that I actually think there's something sacred going on in human culture, and language is really at the foundation or at the origin point of, of all culture, I think. It, it is the most distinctive thing ab about us humans, uh, is our use of language, and um, so for me, it, it also serves as a kind of proxy for all the things that human beings have made that attempt to give expression to what it is to be human in the world, which again, I feel like we sometimes treat very cheaply, but which is actually uh, incredibly precious because it's our best attempt to sort of rise to uh, what I would say we were created to be. And as, as a Christian, I, you know, the other thing, of course, I think of as sacred, though it seems, it does seem like almost too easy an answer is persons um, and not just attractive persons or powerful persons or successful persons, but every person. And we're all engaged in this collective project for which we need one another of making adequate sense of the world and kind of rising to our calling in the world. And the way we do that is through the cultural things we create, beginning with the way we speak and write. So maybe that's... Um, Maybe those are two reasons. It was very powerful for me at a formative moment in my life and continues to be. And it's also connected to this deeper passion I have to see our cultural um, creations as not merely utilitarian, but as really hooked up to something quite deeply transcendent. Well, I'm really excited to hear that because, as you know, I'm interested in our public language and how we talk to each other, particularly how we talk to people who are different from ourselves. And I have a hunch about that in some way leading how we then go on to treat each other. They're obviously symbiotic, but certainly from the other side of the uh, Atlantic, uh, the impression we get of the public language in the States at the moment is perhaps, <laughs> you know... Yeah, I, I mean, I think imagine. part of it is it makes us feel that little <laughs> bit better about how we're doing, which is why those ridiculous British America watchers spend so much time uh, glued to the car crash. But tell me, one, I don't want to assume that the impression we get is accurate. So tell me how you think public language is going uh, is going in the States and why, whatever your uh, assessment is. 
Well, let me start with a, a contrarian uh, take and then go on to confirm probably everything you suspect and assume. Uh, I, I had the great privilege a few years ago now of interviewing the novelist, primarily novelist, also essayist, Marilyn Robinson. Uh, she's an American writer of great uh, uh, reputation, won the Pulitzer Prize for her novel Gilead. She's a former Theos Annual lecturer. And, uh, one of- oh, yes, right. Yeah, one of the best nights of my life was having dinner with her and Rowan Williams. Well, oh, <laughs> indeed. We'll talk about people who use language, uh, all three of you, uh, at the most exquisite level. You know, so I had this hour-long conversation with uh, with Marilyn Robinson, and but the moment I remember is I, I was struck that I ought to ask her about fame and what had happened or what she had learned, uh, having acquired a level of fame that very rarely accrues to people who teach creative writing at, at, uh, the university of Iowa as, as prominent as that creative writing program is, um, until Gilead, Marilyn Robinson was anything but a household name, although very respected in her own field. And suddenly, you know, she was, had a much higher profile. So I asked her what is different or what are you seeing differently now that you have a certain level of public, uh, notoriety? And she had the most amazing answer. She said, America is better than what you see on TV. And she went on to say that, uh, you know, when you watch television, you just think this is a land of, of utter vapidity and, and shallowness. Her fame and her, the public opportunities that it opened up because of her writing and the success of her writing had, had brought her over and over to places in American public life, in libraries, in school, uh, you know, meeting halls, um, in bookstores, where she met not just a few people, but, you know, crowds of people. We spoke, she and I spoke in this auditorium absolutely packed with a thousand people in Grand Rapids, Michigan, kind of in the uh, upper Midwest heartland of the United States, who she said care, care about language, care about justice, care about equity, care about a, a, real substantial civic life and uh this i've also found this to be the case that that when you go looking for it <laughs> there are incredible depths and riches uh in my country um and i think about her writing i think about uh, another novelist i admire who has a very different political take uh, uh the novelist mark halperin and i i read uh, individuals like this and they're writing and I just think they are creating some of the most beautiful, substantive, um, significant works of literary art ever. And and that is happening at the exact same time that a person whose command of the English language is, sh- whose command of his own mind I think is quite shaky, is dominating our discourse with these 140 character bursts of folly. I mean, just the sheerest folly. And I use that word in the full biblical sense of the word. Um, and, and, and is dragging everyone down with him so that our best-selling book, as I write, is, is this absolutely uh, preposterous flation, uh, confabulation uh, of accounts from, purportedly from inside the Trump White House, some of which no doubt are true, many of which are no doubt are false, written with an utter disregard for the truth of words and merely to capitalize on this kind of degrading of our discourse. And, and it is, it's occupying way too much of everyone's imagination and attention. Um, and both of these are just true at the same time. And even so, as 2017 went on and, you know, just objectively terrible things were happening in our public life and more specifically in our public conversation, even so, 
my daily life was full of the most beautiful, deep, significant conversations and reading and, you know, other forms of art that are being produced right now. So it's very hard. I mean, it's a nation, obviously, of 300 million people, and a lot of different things are going on at the same time. <laughs> but it is the case that you you look at what used to be the sort of expected level of public discourse and mediated discourse. That is what got through the filter of media, all the uh, ways we have to put something between human beings, you know, which is media, just Latin for in the middle. Uh, that used to be filtered to a certain standard. And of course, that had its own problems and challenges, but that has entirely disappeared. And, and now it's really almost reverse filtered. So in audio engineering, we have these things called high pass filters and low pass filters. And, and they're circuits that either allow low frequencies to come through or cut them out or allow high frequencies to come through or cut them out. And I, I almost feel like, uh, I'm not sure exactly how to apply this metaphor, but the, the, uh, a public discourse in America used to have a low pass, uh, sorry, let's call it a high pass filter. In other words, it only let through things that had a certain level of apparent quality. Now there was still a lot of foolishness and so forth, but it's almost like now it's been flipped. And now the, the things that have real quality can almost not get through. They're, they're, they're filtered out by the way our media now work. And what is let through is the most base B A S E, uh, kind of, um, frequencies in a sense of our public life and this is incredibly damaging uh and and both of these things are happening at the same time i'm going to take a quick break from this conversation to catch up with what's going on with the theos team with Nick Spencer in the Theos office to talk about the American edition of his book that some of you may have already got hold of the UK editions and I've completely forgotten the title. You want to leave this bit in? You've got to leave this bit in. Evolution of the West, beloved colleague. <laughs> um, the Evolution of the West is being launched in the States. Hooray for our American listeners. Run out and buy it. Uh, Nick, tell me, um, it's been a bit updated. What have you added? Um, well, the I took a few chapters out. So there was a chapter on how... Um, Christianity and the Bible were influential in defining Englishness and Britishness. And the publisher said, any chance we do that for America? So I did a chapter on that for America. I did a chapter on how um, the word has been weaponized in various different forms through American political history has been used. Which word? The word of God. Capital T, capital W. That's right. Has been weaponized to achieve certain ends, some, some good, some perhaps less good. And then I did a chapter on the way in which Christian um, language, rhetoric, imagery has been used in various populist movements in the last 20 years or so, and what that says about politics and indeed the gospel. So tell me about that. Populism is a having a moment, a spasm, if you will. What did you discover about Christian populism in particular? Well, it's very popular. It depends where you go in Europe, but... Those cultures that have deep Christian roots, when populist parties or movements emerge there, um, they seize on the imagery of Christendom or the language of a Christian nation or amorphous Christian values. But interestingly, they do so sometimes, in fact, very often in direct uh, opposition or there's opposition from church authorities who don't like them doing it and they do so for exclusionary reasons 
This isn't Christian rhetoric and Christian nationhood to be used to include, to be hospitable. It's rhetoric in order to say, this is a particular kind of culture. It's Christian. I'll leave that in inverted commas. And you're not welcome here. Interesting uh, for those of us who perhaps see in the words of Jesus something leaning a bit more towards inclusion and loving the neighbour and welcoming the other. There's an equal and opposite reaction to that kind of populist use of Christian rhetoric, which is to say, right, in that case, this stuff doesn't belong in politics at all. But I think that's a that's a mistake. And in fact, I think keeping or trying to keep the public square vigorously scrubbed, secular neutral, is a surefire way to give rocket fuel to Christian and the other forms of populism. The, the, the essay in, in the book really argues that the proper answer to... Um, if you like, theology light Christian populist rhetoric is theology heavy Christian political practice. In other words, understanding the political implications of the gospel. Of course, there's no single understanding, but having a grasp of them and engaging in public debate in a way that I hope we do at Theos, which is both true to the demands of the gospel and realistic to the pressures of the public square. No such thing as a neutral public square, but attempts to bring Christian rhetoric in in the way that has happened in some places in the last generation or so is profoundly unhelpful. So what might a Christian political engagement that is not this thin theological Christian populism look like? How would it look different? Well, the obvious example there, and the one in which the biggest battles have been fought is around immigration. I'm careful in the chapter not to come down very strongly one way or other in terms of one particular immigration policy is Christian, another is not. But if you just dwell in the realm of political rhetoric, ironically, or perhaps not, one of the Christian populists' biggest enemies, their bete noire, is Pope Francis, who, from his very first visit to Lampedusa to his time in, on Lesbos, emphatically emphasising the hospitality and generosity of the gospel over and against any kind of fortress mentality. You can't directly translate that rhetoric into public policy. I mean, arguably, Angela Merkel did a couple of years ago, and it was a highly risky and very, very contentious thing to do. Nonetheless, rhetoric does matter, not least in how you see other people and how you treat them. It's interesting for me looking at other different media environments. A few years ago, Theos did a report called Is There a Religious Right Emerging in the UK? Because every so often, our particularly our liberal-leaning media would look at what's gone on in the States really over the last 30 years with this conflation really of right-leaning politics and conservative religion and say, um, is this happening in the UK? Does is this? A, it became a bit of a bogeyman really and there were a few groups that occasionally there'd be a kind of expose on. Uh, so we did um, some qualitative work. We went and, and spoke to those organisations. We spoke to some of their critics. We looked at their size and their membership and their money and their access um, to politics and came to the conclusion that no, there really wasn't, not even close, which was hilariously covered by the liberal press with this strange spasm of both relief, but that doesn't fit the story that we were wanting to tell. So um, some of the headlines were a bit skewed. But anyway, one of the reasons that we floated for the possibility that this, um, for 
the fact that this isn't happening was our different media environment, a much more regulated media environment, um, whereby particularly broadcast media is highly, highly regulated. But our press has had a lot more leeway, really. I know the UK tabloids in particular are seen as sort of rabid dog of the newspaper world. Whereas in the States, you have these, I I, I perceive really quite sensible, nuanced, thoughtful print media and your broadcast media. It's interesting, isn't it? That's That's right. We have almost nothing that corresponds to your tabloids, actually, in print. Yeah. No, no. Um, whereas these, uh, the licensing to get a, a radio station or you know a television station seems to have been much more relaxed. So uh, I think it's really important as we talk about our public language that we do reflect on what these actually policy decisions um, have have ended up in. Well, that is that's fascinating. I've never thought of it in quite that way, and I think you're right. Um, of course, uh, you know we have to. Well. Hmm. It seems it seems to me, though, I, I'm wondering if this is the case that that the broadcast media are inevitably more powerful in shaping imagination because they are so much I, I mean, in information theory terms, there's so much higher bandwidth. So as kind of powerful as a screaming headline and a tabloid can be, and we do have those in the US as well, though they're not widely circulated. They're not of, they're never of national kind of import in the way that that I think maybe some of the, uh, your tabloids are. As powerful as that can be, there's nothing like television for just the ability to capture one's attention and imagination and shape one. Uh, so it seems to me we got the worst of that uh, regulatory difference, maybe, between our two nations. However, I'd extend it by saying all that has been completely eclipsed by um, Facebook and Twitter, really. Um, so we would not have uh, our current president without Twitter. Uh, he is a master of this new form of media, which is in no way regulated, um, and which has its own kind of logic of how you get attention and gain kind of uh, rhetorical power. And then we also would not have uh, so that's in some ways Donald Trump was like made for Twitter and Twitter was made for him. <laughs> um, but the broader thing that's more significant in American life is Facebook, which allows ordinary people to sort of circumvent the uh, the filtering functions, whether of print or broadcast, and just in a way decide for themselves uh, with the powerful reinforcing function of Facebook's algorithms kind of as a kind of tailwind pushing them in a certain direction. Um, what matters to them and what's salient to them. And so now you really have, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of editors choosing which stories to share and their tastes, their needs, their sense of what is worth sharing have been formed by a couple generations of broadcast media and entertainment. They are not readers. Uh, they haven't probably had a chance to read. The, uh, the sort of median American has, has taken very little opportunity to sort of sustain a life of reflection of any kind. And, and now they com completely circumvent. You know, um, I, I used to think uh, people who watch like daytime television do not read, but the producers of daytime television, uh, which is where our sort of more sensational talk shows and so forth are hosted, or even something like Oprah, which is maybe one click more substantive, uh, the, the audience doesn't read very much, but the producers do. Um, the producers are reading The New Yorker, reading The New York Times, reading Harper's. I mean, really serious stuff because it's kind of part of their class identity in a way. And it's also the way they get kind of a picture of the world. 
Um, so it used to be the case that even though the audience didn't read, at least the people behind the cameras and writing the scripts and programming the shows did. But Facebook completely circumvents that. <laughs> so we're now in a fully kind of post-literate culture where gesture or even gesticulation, emotion, outrage above all, because uh, outrage is in some ways the most powerful shareable emotion. It's very hard to share joy in a compelling way uh, through a thin pipe of media, but it's very possible to share outrage. And that is now driving what people are engaging with. And then in turn, the producers of media are now given all this data about who's reading what. You know, having worked in uh, both print and online journalism for uh, over a decade, when I started, we had almost no information about what people were reading. We had to send out these reader surveys to see what they were reading in the magazine. Very imprecise, very fuzzy. And, and then you get to the point uh, with the kind of rise of Google Analytics where you have granular data, I mean, down to which part of the page people are paying attention to. And you discover they're paying attention to the most sensational things. And that's where the ads are being watched. And that's where things are being clicked. And so then you start programming to that. So so really, Facebook and Twitter have totally eclipsed the what we used to call the media in, in terms of shaping public conversation. And how, as someone who was involved in the leadership and the editorship of Christianity's Day, is it fair to say it's the largest evangelical publication in the States? Yes, I, uh, sir, uh, there's one There's one other that has maybe a similar circulation called World, which is more conservative. But uh, yes, CT would be kind of the flagship evangelical Christian monthly. You were trying to uh, serve that community with those, I guess, commercial realities. And going into the election uh, ahead of last year, you wrote a very widely shared editorial uh, criti criticizing Donald Trump and criticizing Christians' seeming inability to apply the same standards of uh, rigor around character assessment equally across the parties. How, tell me about that for you personally and internally. How difficult was that? What was the emotional journey there? And um, where have you kind of gone since. Well, one piece of background to that would be that CT has rarely um, commented in its own editorial voice on on political races, let's say. I mean, we certainly have always been very engaged with political issues and policy, um, but had almost entirely avoided kind of directly endorsing or disendorsing uh, any given candidate. And, you know, a lot of candidates have come through over the decades whose character probably doesn't line up with Christian standards of morality <laughs> from both parties. Donald Trump, we ended up feeling was in a different category. And, and we honestly put off um, commenting uh, in our own editorial voice for much of the race. But the scandal that began to emerge as the only evangelical voices that were kind of audible or visible or salient to the public were, were the really this handful, but but not entirely marginal group of American evangelicals who strongly endorsed Trump, especially once it became clear that Trump was going to win uh, the nomination of uh, the Republican nomination. Um, this came to seem to us to be such a scandal that we, you know, broke our policy. And I, uh, I was the one who kind of volunteered <laughs> to uh, write the piece. Um, uh, it was, it was both an agonizing decision and a very easy decision. And, and once we had decided to do it, like it happened so fast, it was so easy to write 
uh, and name what was so wrong about this sort of full-throated support for Donald Trump that was coming from some, definitely not all, but some uh, evangelical leaders. And and it's very simple. It's that he's a fool. And that's what I said. Uh, you know, the kind of most quoted, I think, sentence from the piece was, uh, Donald Trump is the very definition of what the Bible calls a fool. And and this matters um, not for, it's really doesn't have that much to do with kind of simple matters of morality. It's that the, the teaching of the Bible is that when you allow fools to have power, they mess up everything for everyone. It's not just they who have a problem, but the whole system around them becomes corrupted by it. And of course, this is exactly what happened. So... Anyway, I wrote this uh, editorial in October, uh, early October of 2016, and uh, I'll tell you two things about it. One is that uh, we got more calls than we ever have from people saying, I'm going to cancel my subscription to CT. And then in the end, actually only 12 people canceled their subscriptions. (laughs) So most of those people who called us saying they were going to cancel their subscriptions, I think actually were not subscribers, but actually had, um, had heard about it on TV and were just mad and called to tell us they were mad. The other thing that happened, uh, is that, that thousands of people subscribed and gave money and we ended up having the most, uh, uh, sort of successful quarter of our uh, fiscal year in the whole time that I worked at CT because people were so hungry for an alternative voice. That is really encouraging to hear. Obviously, evangelical support for Trump remained, uh, for those watching from a bit of a distance, perturbingly still high, although I think probably waning. Uh, for our UK listeners um, who just cannot get their head round how that would be possible. Um, talk, give me the most sympathetic case, because I think, obviously, and just because I think this is everything, is going on here is a clash of sacred values. This is not a kind of rational, and politics very rarely actually a rational decision. Who we support is rarely a kind of pro, pro and con list of, of benefits or detriments. Um, something much deeper and more emotional is going on. I don't think there's a load of evangelicals going, well, clearly he's... Um, unstable and therefore I will support him. I think they're defending something else. There's a sacred value there. So um, perhaps four evangelicals and then maybe unpack that for me. Yes, yes. Oh, I think you're completely right. And I can tell you what I think the sacred value is. It's shame and honor. We are going through a transition, I think, in in maybe all Western societies, but certainly in the United States, driven very much by media, that is a return to what anthropologists sometimes call the shame-honor dynamic of culture. And, you know, some cultures, especially Western ones, have been thought of more in terms of guilt and innocence. So kind of what most deeply matters is whether you are guilty whether your conscience accuses you or, or frees you or, you know, uh, or quits you, let's say. Um, but in many cultures, maybe the majority of human cultures, the primary axis around which life is organized is not guilt and innocence, but shame and honor. Uh, we could go in, I have a long conversation about why this is kind of returning, I think, in American life uh, and maybe in our world more generally. But uh, it's very simple. The Democrats, uh, the Democratic Party have treated uh, a certain kind of American who also happens to be very often connected in some way with evangelical Christianity. Um with contempt. Uh, they've treated the things that, that these 
Americans hold most sacred with contempt. This would above all be uh, human life and and uh, vulnerable human life, especially uh, unborn human beings. Um, the Democratic Party, uh, not long ago, had room for a range of views on uh, kind of the legality of, of abortion at various stages of pregnancy. Uh, that is, that era is entirely over. Um, there is no room in the Democratic Party for pro-life uh, candidates, really almost at any level, let alone the national level. But deeper than the issue is is the undisguised <laughs> I really think it's fair to say uh, contempt that um, cert- that that especially the democratic apparatus has for very broadly speaking southern white uh, working and middle class Americans and those people very often also happen to be evangelical Christians, at least in their sort of cultural religious identification. They aren't necessarily readers of it's a bit like Anglicanism in the UK, I always think, doesn't necessarily mean they attend an evangelical church. It's just what everyone is. It it really is. Yes. And 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 this is another interesting transition in American life, namely that uh, that when I was uh, young, I'm 49 as we speak. Uh, when I was young, the the we had this thing in America called mainline Protestantism. It was sort of the Protestantism of the establishment. It was what you were if you weren't anything else. Very much like Anglican in in, uh, in England, and uh, and that was Methodists and Presbyterians and so forth, and and quite often quite liberal uh, politically and theologically, but. We had a shift in the 1980s and 1990s to where now mainstream American Protestantism, kind of the background Protestantism in the parts of the country that still have a kind of religious identity uh, is actually evangelical. So if you aren't anything else in those parts of the country, you're probably kind of vaguely evangelical, even if you haven't been to a church service in a long time. So there's this kind of overlap um, between what you might call demographic characteristics and then religious uh at least notional or nominal affiliation. Contempt is what, you know, I bet that you remember, <laughs> as, as do I in my own case, almost every moment of someone showing you personally uh, direct contempt for you. It, it, it lodges deep in the human psyche. And so when uh, presidential candidates say, talk about people clinging bitterly to their guns, God and God uh, and religion, or when they use this phrase, you know, a bat, that was President Obama or uh, candidate Clinton uh, uh, talking about a basket of deplorables. Um, you just can't imagine how deeply those phrases lodge themselves in the in the consciousness of, of people, or even not just it's the subconscious, the unconscious. At the same time, you had someone like Donald Trump who. On matters of guilt and innocence, I mean, the guy doesn't even, he says he's never needed to ask God for for forgiveness. I mean, this man has no sense of guilt at all, which is a very fundamental Christian idea that we all bear a measure of guilt and needs a measure of forgiveness. This man has none of it. But what he does have is the ability to convey honor. He He's lived his whole life on the honor-shame axis. He's constantly pursuing honor for himself. That and, and by honor, I don't mean things that are honorable in the sense of being noble or proper or appropriate. I mean, public acclaim, visibility, people not being able to deny your power, um, people having to recognize you and defer to you in public. This has been Donald Trump's entire life has been pursuing this. And he knows how to tell to a group of people who have felt shamed by another group, I honor you. He's not even pretending to be an evangelical. 
and evangelicals, this, the kind of evangelicals who support him don't need that from him. But what he does say is, I honor you. And you know, in this, he follows um, the, the great master of uh, right of right wing, let's say, or right of center politics in, in the last uh, several generations, Ronald Reagan, uh, who went to a, a conference of the National Religious Broadcasters Association, uh, which was kind of a very powerful block, especially in the 1980s, before his election. And, and he had this really, really memorable line. He said to them, you can't endorse me, but, and that was because of, uh, uh, regulations around broadcasting and so forth that, that uh, broadcasting outlets can't endorse a candidate uh, and nonprofit organizations can't. So he said, you can't endorse me, but I endorse you. And that validation affirmation for people who even then were somewhat culturally marginal, were from parts of the country that are often looked down on by the places that have a lot of money and power. You can't endorse me, but I endorse you. Ronald Reagan didn't say I'm one of you. He didn't say I believe all the things you believe. He said something much more important to human beings. I endorse you. (laughs) I recognize you. I give you respect. And Donald Trump has given that to people who have felt from from elites in all of our political life, in all of our media, whether they're ostensibly Republican or Democrat, have felt barely disguised contempt. That's the power behind the durable support from one part of evangelicalism for Donald Trump. I think that what we need in terms of our public conversations is a higher level of emotional intelligence and self-awareness of where our reactions are coming from. Um, And the the kind of almost so quoted it's a cliche model for some of that is uh, Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement who were so aware of their own responses to threat and their own responses I assume also to shame and to denigration and how counterproductive those responses usually were for themselves and others that the work they did in role play and in um, these long lists of repentance that they in church on a Sunday before a march I think you told me this they would be uh, repenting of bitterness repenting of resentment so that they were able to go out and see these people who triggered shame in them triggered um, threat in them triggered defensiveness in them triggered self-righteousness in them which is what I think happens all of us when we encounter people who disagree with us who make us feel threatened in our identity and then they developed ways of overcoming um holding their temper uh, you know and, and 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 seeking to radically love the other in a way that i think is tremendously countercultural more so now radical and also deeply effective so my kind of research question that I'm nicking away at is what would it look like for a different kind of public engagement from everyone but I guess Christians should be the first ones to step up to the plate given our history and given the theology behind some of that thinking what would it look like for a new kind of public engagement um, that is is able to heal some of these divides I, I that's so well put and I think it is what's needed um And it was so radical and unexpected when the leaders of the civil rights movement drawing on inescapably, I would say, drawing on religious tradition, were able to build into their acts of advocacy and protest this um, kind of moment or this phase of the process, which was actually a kind of internal purification, which was the, the language that was used, sanctification, purification. Um, before going out in public, actually cleansing themselves in a way, or I mean, I think they would say allowing God to cleanse them of these sort of very powerful instinctual reactions. So, you know, we all have this just the reaction to contempt the rea- or to threat. Uh, by the way, you know, guilt, innocence, honor, shame, and then uh, fear, 
safety are these are kind of the basic axes of human culture and of human psychology and and they uh they had this way of working through those so their responses were not just our our instinctual fight or flight type responses it's hard to imagine that uh outside of religious context in fact i might tell you just one more story about my trump editorial uh which is more personal um i wrote that uh over a weekend and i happened to be on my way uh to new orleans uh, that weekend to be with a group of white and black uh, friends who are we are making pilgrimages around the country to to sort of sites and places that were significant in the history of of white supremacy and racism in the United States and we're doing this just as a group of Christian friends uh, who want to be pursuing um, deep healing and reconciliation first for ourselves and then ultimately for our broader church and civic community. And the editorial was published while I was with this group of about 15 uh, friends. And we were having a meeting. Um, we were visiting, and New Orleans was the site of the uh, largest, I believe, slave market in the United States. So we were visiting sites related to this, processing this together, talking through it. The, the article went live online at noon, uh, and we were just about to break for lunch. And I happened to just open up my Twitter <laughs> as we were breaking for lunch. <laughs> And within like minutes of it being published, honestly, long before anyone could have d deeply read or engaged with the article, I was already getting this flood of of reaction. Some of it very positive, some of it unbelievably vitriolic. And of course, what did I remember and what did I react to? It was the vitriolic part, right? Because that's what you retain. Like I can remember almost every critical thing that's ever been written about me. And, and really, I, there's lots of positive things that have been written. I couldn't quote any of them to you. I could probably still quote to you uh, right now things that were written about me in those first few moments of looking at Twitter after that article was published. And I had this overwhelming sense. I realized, oh, this is going to be big. And it did end up being the most read thing CT has ever published. So I realized millions of people are going to read this. This is going to be a flood of reaction, not just for this hour, but the next day, week, month. And I suddenly had this overwhelming sense of how spiritually dangerous this was for me and how easily I could start reacting to it and, and being captured by it. So I, I interrupted, we were kind of breaking to uh, have a meal. And I said, before we have a meal, I, I need you all to actually pray for me. And uh, they knew the article was coming out. This group of friends gathered around me, actually, my wife and children were with me as well, my teenage children, and they, they had us sit down. And this is something we do in certain Christian circles. It'll be unfamiliar to some uh, listeners, very familiar to others, but but we have this practice of laying hands on people in the Christian tradition where you actually, everyone puts a hand on a shoulder or on your back or sometimes on your head. And this group of about a dozen friends laid their hands on us and prayed for protection for us, spiritual protection from pride, from shame, from anger, from resentment, from, from all the things that were going to come from this uh, article going live. And it was one of the most transformative experiences of my life. I mean, literally, I sat down full of anxiety, fear, also a little bit of elation, like I just did something really big and important, you know, and I got up from this very powerful 15 minutes or so of prayer, completely at peace, not worried, not tr pursuing anything, just trusting that God was working, if I can use that kind of direct religious language. It would not have happened without this group of people who basically interrupted the cycle of reaction and helped me turn to God, as we believed, who was in the room 
kind of changing our hearts and minds. And it totally changed how I went through the next week and how I reacted to all the publicity and complications that came my way, all the reactions, positive and negative. And uh, it just was so much more healthy. Now, how you do that uh, without access to God, I don't know. but I think we need those kind of moments of interruption that recenter us in what we really value and believe in, uh, in order to be able to stay engaged in public. And otherwise, we end up just reacting to one another. Andy, I feel like I could talk to you all day, but I am going to ask one last question um, to help channel some of your wisdom to our listeners. And that is, uh, what would be the practical changes that people who are concerned about our public language, concerned about our growing tribalism, our divides, our inability to talk to people different from ourselves. What, what are the, the practical steps or step they could take to help make a difference? Well, I, I wonder, here's what I think of. I, I actually think we should learn to wait before we react. So you read something online that really is compelling to you. Either it makes you really mad or it makes, makes you really glad. Instead of sharing it, what about waiting 24 hours um, and thinking about how you're going to share it, whether it's because you agree or disagree. Um, I think we need to, you know, this used to be built in. I mean, you used to receive a letter from someone and it had come through the post. <laughs> it took a day or two or more to arrive. And then you had to sit down and you had to handwrite your response and hand it to someone who would deliver it through the post to your correspondent. Like there was built in time for reflection. And if we choose, we never have to wait now. We can react instantly. Those of us who want to make a meaningful contribution need to have, in a way, the courage, because it does take courage to do this, to wait and not instantly react. And the other thing that I think one needs... um, we all have the option to publish without an editor now. <laughs> that is to say, we can just go live with our thoughts anytime uh, on Twitter, on a blog, on Facebook. Uh, we can set up our own podcast and just start blabbing out our thoughts. Um, but uh, as a writer and communicator, I've learned I'm so much better when I have an editor. In, in the audio world, we talk about producers playing a similar role. And it's so much better when that editor is not just like me. So what if we submitted our work to others whom we trust, but who are not just identical in their convictions, their sacred values, and so forth to us? Uh, now, we're, uh, uh, the immediate reaction is, that I feel is, but, but if we do that, the, the bad guys will, they're not waiting, they're going ahead, they're writing, they're blogging, they're tweeting. And, and, you know, what will happen if we wait? And I think this leads to a very deep question, which is, do we trust that there's some good at work in the world and that God's at work in the world or not? And if we don't trust that, then we will be always in a hurry. Um, someone is wrong on the internet, you know? <laughs> um, but if we trust that there's some uh, redemptive force at work in history, then I think we can afford to wait. And if we wait, our contributions will be better and deeper and maybe of more enduring value uh, than otherwise. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I really hope you enjoyed it, and I do hope that you're listening to our previous episodes. Do follow us on Twitter at sacred underscore podcast. You can tell me directly what you thought at Theos Elizabeth, and you can find out more about our work at Theos at theosthinktank.co.uk. Thank you.